Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 84. I want you to imagine just for a moment that you in your walk with the Lord are enjoying peace, you're experiencing intimacy with God, you enjoy the privileges of worship, and your life is virtually at peace. Probably with a few exceptions, most of us can say that at one time or another that was probably true of us. But I want you to imagine just for a moment, that suddenly and drastically all of that is taken from you. Imagine just hypothetically that you might be overseas somewhere and you find yourself in some sort of trouble. And then you are cast into a prison. Somebody discerns or discovers that you are a Christian, and then for the next several years of your life, you are intensely persecuted, painfully dealt with, stripped of all the freedoms that we now enjoy. You may get a sense, if you can feel that, for what the life of David looked like at the time that Psalm 84 was written. For at one point in his life, David enjoyed great peace, enjoyed great joy. He fellowshiped with God's people. But because of intense persecution, especially coming from his own son, David was put to flight and stripped of all the things that he used to take for granted. I would imagine that if you were in that prison somewhere, locked away with some sort of intense hatred towards your faith, that you would long for this place. That you would think to yourself, oh, how I wish I could be in the presence of my God with God's people. You would probably remember every detail of this sanctuary. Once it's stripped from you, we tend to remember those things. You would probably feel the alienation and the pain and the heartache of Psalm 84, which I believe is a psalm designed to move us through three very critical points that every one of us experience. The first verse of this hymn, the second verse of this hymn, and the third verse of this hymn take us on a journey. We move from alienation from God or separation from the joy of knowing the Lord through a journey that is very, very difficult and painful, ultimately to find ourselves at peace with him. All of us have been there at one time or another. I've wondered many times, even this past week, what if all of this is not true? What if all that we believe is just a myth. 
Sometimes I believe God calls us in our state of alienation to greater faith. And there are times I believe he even strips away his face so that we might walk exclusively in faith apart from any feelings. For as instant pudding Christians as we are, we want immediate satisfaction right now within 30 seconds. We pour a few ingredients into a pot, stir it up, instant jello. And in fact, even in our society today, I believe that that is the kind of people we have all become. I want it, and I want it now. Anything that hinders me from having that will cause me great consternation. And yet when we read Psalm 84, exactly the opposite is taught. When we find ourselves over here, alienated from God, to get here into an intimacy with God requires a very painful journey. You'll remember in the first verse of this hymn, which covers really the first four verses of the hymn, David says, if you'll look at Psalm 84, verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. David's alienation was emotional, spiritual, and even physical pain that welled up from within his own body, his own heart, because something was missing. His relationship with his God was strained. It says in verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Remembering even the birds that sat on the ceiling in that shack-like temple created in David a heart that welled up, a heart that welled up with pain. He wished that he could see that again. And then he says in verse 4, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. You see, if you are trusting in yourself, you will have neither the inclination nor the felt need to worship God. Your pride will not permit it. Prayer is for someone else. Worship is trite. Celebrating God's goodness becomes secondary to celebrating your own. We say, I do not need God. I can trust in my own power, my own money, my own influence, and my own ingenuity. And given that ingenuity, and given that influence, and that power, and that money, the more we trust in that, the more we find ourselves alienated from God and the joy is literally sapped from us. It doesn't satisfy. So in the first verse of this hymn, which covers the first four verses of scripture, we find David over here, alienated from his God. Now certainly David was not personally alienated. He is 
recognizing the fact that the dwelling place of God was in the temple. You and I on this side of the cross have a much greater relationship because Christ doesn't simply dwell among us, Christ dwells in us. But the dwelling place of God was defined as the temple, and that's what David longed for. Very in, 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 in separation from that temple, it welled up within David that his heart and his flesh and his spirit and his soul experienced great loneliness and great alienation. The second verse of this great hymn begins with verse 5. And in that section, verses 5 through 8, David talks about the journey in between. He talks about how he's going to get from this alienation to this intimacy. The journey along the way is not going to be easy. The journey is going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. Along the way, he is going to experience great testing. It's not going to come easy. He's going to experience a force and a counterforce in his life. Because you see, the moment you decide to go from that period or that posture of alienation to a greater intimacy with God, all of hell lines up against you. There is a force and a counterforce. But David describes this incredible journey as a journey that goes from strength to strength, literally from company to company. And if you were with me the last time, we talked about what that entailed. That valley of Bacah, that dust-like journey of tears and sorrow, heartache and pain, that in and of yourself, you could never make that journey unless someone else had gone before you to pave the way. The pilgrim, as David says in verse 5, when he talks about the heart being set on pilgrimage, he says in verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Bacah, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. You see, along that journey from where David was to Jerusalem, he had to pass through the valley of tears. He had to come through the valley of Bacah. And in and of himself, he could never make that journey. He was dependent upon one very critical element. That along the way from where he was to where he needed to be, in passing through that valley of Bacah, others were standing on the other side urging him forward. Others were digging the ditches. Literally, that's what company to company or strength to strength means. Others would dig the trenches and wait for the rains to come down, those sudden shower outbursts. And they would dig that trench and the trench would fill up with water and then they would move on, knowing full well somebody else was coming behind them. And along the way through the Valley of Bacah, you can see probably the greatest illustration of what body life is all about, of what legacy is all about, of what heritage is all about. For godly parents and godly grandparents to see this, 
that they are digging trenches. And hopefully their parents and their grandparents dug those trenches ahead of them. And we walk in this life through the valley of tears. And we dig the trenches knowing full well our children are coming behind us. Knowing full well they will learn what it means to walk by faith. Along the way they will have trial and testing. Hope. Hope that somebody ahead of them did it right. But yet they will also have a hope and a promise that they can pass through the valley of Bacah in order to have that greater intimacy with God. And so he says, they go from strength to strength, verse 7, till each appears before God in Zion. It's not an easy path. In fact, let me take you to a passage, hold your place there in Psalm 84, and turn with me to Acts chapter 19. I think this is a great illustration of what we can expect along the way. Acts chapter 19, look with me beginning at verse 11. God did extraordinary things, extraordinary miracles through Paul. What were they? Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. This is an incredible outpouring of God's miraculous grace in order to do two things, to confirm the apostleship of Paul to those who doubted it and to give healing and grace to those who were hurting and so through the agency of his apostles, God would bring miraculous things to bear. Parenthetically, there are some who take this verse out of context. They'll get on the TV set and sweat with great sweat and wipe their brows with their towels and say, you know what, what you just heard was anointed preaching and my sweat on this towel you need to have. And they'll cut it up into pieces, claiming that verse if you'll send them $100. I don't see any of that here, do you? It says God worked great miracles through Paul. The confirmation that Paul was God's spokesman is the fact that he did this miraculously. That's another sermon. The point being that there was a great outpouring of healing, a great outpouring of God's grace and mercy, the evidence of God's presence. Well, what can you expect? The moment you're out here in this alienation and the moment you're out here in this separation from God, the moment you turn, no, wait a minute, the moment you begin to turn and determine that you are going to get back into the temple where you belong, you're going to make the journey along the way. The moment you make that decision, you can expect something to happen. What you can expect to happen is that behind or between you and that destination, a whole army of demonic power is going to rise up against you. You can expect that. Listen to me. If you know Christ this morning, if you are trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation, if you have truly repented of your sins, if you have believed the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, if you know him, and you have that intimacy with him, there will be times when you stray. 
And when you make those determinations to return into his presence, Satan's going to line up. But listen to me. He can never, ever, ever take away from you the salvation that Christ gave you when he declared on the cross, it is finished. There is no coming to salvation, losing salvation, going back to salvation, losing salvation. When you truly repent and trust Christ as your Savior, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been blotted out by the blood of Christ. Having said that, what can Satan do? One thing Satan can make very evident, one thing Satan can make very clear is that if he can halt you in that journey and keep you from that intimacy with Christ, if he can put up enough obstacles to cause you to turn back, although he will not take away your salvation, although he can't do that and doesn't have the power to do that, he can do the next best thing. He can rob you of power and he can rob you of assurance. You will come to the place where you say, why do I keep turning and turning back? Why do I keep turning and turning back? The moment I hit an obstacle, I turn back. The moment I hit a roadblock, I turn back. And you may even get to the point where you doubt your own salvation. But I want you to notice what happens next in Acts 19. You have this outpouring. You have these people coming to this beautiful intimacy with God. But notice verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord. By the way, notice they're called Jews. That's usually terminology by Luke designed to show they're not believers. These are non-believers who are casting out demons. Imagine that. Non-believers who are casting out demons. I'll come back to that in a moment. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, saw Paul doing that, whom Paul preaches, in the name of that same God, in the name of Jesus, we heard Paul say this, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva a Jewish priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them. Stop there for a moment. No evil spirit can ever speak to you who truly trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. They don't have the right to do that. Demons do not talk to you. There's no conversation going on back and forth between you and demons. In fact, it's a very, very dangerous thing and a dangerous theology for you to think that you can do that. You want to know why? Because fundamentally at heart, Satan and his demons are cowards. Cowards and bullies. When you come face to face with demonic power, that seeks to bully you, you need to keep in mind that standing out in front of you between you and the demon is a bully killer. 
That bully killer is your God, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you, he is not intimidated by them at all. But when you step out in front of the bully killer and you try to handle these things one-on-one, -on -one, you're going to find some incredible loss of power because Satan can chew you up and spit you out. Now watch this. Non-believers casting out demons, the sons of Sceva, verse 15. The evil spirit answered them. That ought to give you a clue right from the very beginning. The evil spirit answered them. I know Jesus. I know Paul. But who in the world are you? And do you know what happens next? The demons jump on the seven sons, beat them to a living pulp, physically, to the point where the seven sons of Sceva go running away, beaten up, bruised, bleeding, and naked. Doesn't sound like spiritual victory to me, does it? There's a point here. It says he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Can you imagine this? You see an outpouring of God's power against evil that way. And the people who were sitting there casually observing their relationship with God, casually worshiping, with no real dynamic, no real sense of intimacy, taking it for granted, they bow down and they begin to confess their own sins, sins done in private. You see, that's one of the things that's going to happen when you're alienated from God and you make the determination to find that pathway back to him. You're going to confess sin. You're going to agree with God along the way. Things need to change. What got me into this mess in the first place, I need to learn from. I need to learn along the way that the sin patterns that brought me to this point need to be disarmed. I need greater strength and greater victory and greater power by true repentance. You see, we watch him as he makes this journey. Now keep in mind something else. I told you that when the man or the woman makes that first turn, they realize something's wrong, they make that first turn, there's a whole army of demons lined up. But there is a greater power that stands between you and those demonic forces to walk you through that pilgrimage. That's what the Bible means when it says greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Then we come to verse 9, third verse of the hymn. 9 through 12 represents the third stanza of this great hymn. First stanza, alienation from God. Second stanza, the valley of Bacaw, the valley of the ditches. 
Third stanza, I'm at home. I'm at peace with my God. I've come to that intimacy. Imagine how David felt. Just imagine how he felt at the halfway point. Imagine as he was gaining strength from company to company. Imagine how he was drinking out of the same springs that others have carved out for him. Imagine as he gets to the halfway point. You see, the first part of a diet is always the hardest part, isn't it? Runners will tell you that the first nine or ten miles of a marathon is really the hardest part. But then they start breaking through. There's something that takes over. They're no, longer, they're no longer feeling what they felt on the first nine miles or ten miles. They've reached a certain point along the way. They've climbed up the hill, and now they're going down the hill. And as David was coming down toward Jerusalem, he could see the light. He could see what he couldn't see when he was on the other side. He could see the light. When he first started out, all he could see was darkness. But now he's beyond the midway point. He sees the light. The energy level increases. His heart begins to beat a little bit faster. His blood begins to move a little bit faster. There is a butterfly in his stomach because now he can see the end of that struggle. And he has hope. Look at verse 9. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Listen to me, intimacy begins with God as our shield. He's the one marching out in front of us. The demonic forces are backing off every step of the way. When Christ takes one step ahead, they take 10 steps back. And the strength from strength to strength, from company to company, continues to grow, and the spiritual intimacy continues to prosper. Why? Because Christ is our shield. He is our protector. He is the one through whom we may approach this holy God, and he is the anointed one. It is Christ who shields us from the wrath of God. It is Christ who protects us and guards our salvation through the Holy Spirit. It is Christ who mediates the judgment of God. Listen to me. The Bible tells us that every single one of us will appear before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. I know for some of you, you have some questions about why do Christians appear before the judgment seat if our sins have already been judged. Hopefully, this will answer that for you. There are three kinds of people that are going to appear before the judgment seat. Those who believe, those who do not believe, and those who think they believe. Those who do not believe, it's obvious. They will have walked through all of their lives rejecting the gospel, living in their own paganism. They will stand before God. He will cast them into hell eternally. No questions asked because of their faithlessness, but there's a second group. These are the religionists, the ones who did what the sons of Sceva did. They were able to cast out demons. They were able to work miracles. They were able to do wonderful deeds. They were able to 
brag on themselves, so to speak. They are the ones who will stand before God and say, Lord, in your name, did we not cast out demons? In your name, did we not? And you fill in the blank. We did these wonderful things in your name. And what does he say to this second group? Depart from me, you workers of evil, for I never knew you. I never knew you. And then there's a third group. That's all of us who have trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. We see what's happened to the first two groups. We've watched as the pagan who is cast into hell. We almost will be able to say, well, he kind of deserves that. But we'll crouch just a little bit lower in humility when we see the religionist. Maybe he'll stand before God and say, you know what? I was a really good Hindu. I could get in a yoga position where my legs were up around my ears. I could wrap myself up into a great big pretzel and meditate on becoming nothingness. I am a good Buddhist. I was a practicing Muslim. And maybe even you and I at that point could say, well, we knew those people weren't going to go to heaven. Maybe that won't bother you so much. But maybe you'll hear somebody say, I was an elder. I was a pastor. I preached the gospel for 40 years. I, I, I. Isn't that what these people say? Lord, did we not do this? And did we not do that? Clearly gives away the heart. Now at that point, we're on our knees because we know he's moving down the line. Now he comes to the church of true believers. And you all know that I believe this is the visible church made up of believers and non-believers. Some of you here or listening or watching, you do not know Christ, but you're part of the visible church. You're playing the game of that second crowd. By this time, we're on our faces because we know, now we know, that the salvation we enjoy is purely of grace. And we're almost ducking and cowering because we see that hell's been opened. And maybe we can hear the screams. Maybe we can smell the fires. Maybe we can feel the heat. Whatever that means. And we're cowered because we know we righteously and rightfully deserve the same fate. Then all of a sudden, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes out and stands in front of you, just like he did on all those journeys you took through the Valley of Baca. And he looks eyeball to eyeball with the one we cannot even perceive to look at. And he says, these are the children for whom I paid the price. I went to hell in their place. I took upon myself the wrath that you so righteously and rightfully deserve to give them. But I did so without sin. I incurred your judgment. I spent the equivalent of an eternity in hell for these people. I went to the cross and died 
And by the power of my spirit, I rose from the dead. And now I stand in the gap and intercede for them. Judge me, Father. Judge them through me. Now all of a sudden, we're worshiping because we rightfully deserve to stand at the bema. But we stand at the bema and are not found guilty. We stand at the bema and we are acquitted. That is what it means that he is our shield. And that's why David says in verse 9, look upon our shield, O God. Who is our shield? Look upon Christ in me. Look with favor on your anointed one, Messiah. Look at verse 10. Better is one day in your courts. We've sung this, haven't we? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Literally, he says, that verse literally means, I would rather be fixed to a post in your house than to be bolted down by my love affair with this world. You know what that means? Oftentimes, slave owners would free their slaves. And in the process of freeing their slaves, and usually, by the way, in the Old Testament, within the economy of the theocracy, slavery was a means by which you paid off the debts. Slavery was a means by which you made restitution. And so when those debts were paid off, when the restitution was made, it was required by the slave owner to give the slave an option. I will set you free, or you can stay here. Many of those slaves recognized the fact that the company of their slave owner was more beneficial to them than being set free into the world in which they had already failed. And some of them would say, I want to come and become a slave of yours for life. So they would take that person to the temple and they would put them or affix their heads on a doorpost and they would pierce their ears and hang an earring from it. That earring became a mark. I am owned by my slave owner. I have given my life to him. David said, I would rather do that. My choice between the world and life in the world and a slave to the master, to the slave owner, the slavery is preferable. No, desirable. The word doulos in the Greek means bond slave. And that's how the Christian is described. That's how Paul describes himself. We are doulos. We are bond slaves. We belong to the master. He, the master, has set us free from the pain and the heartache of life in a fallen world, in that sinful world, and he has affixed his signature to our ears. We now belong to him. We now belong to Christ. Are you a slave? Are you a bond slave? You see, intimacy is being restored here. He said, I'd rather be there than here. 
The problem is many of us think we're comfortable over here. Life in a broken and fallen world. Submitting and succumbing to the worldliness that often leads to critical pain. He says in verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. This has caused our wealth and prosperity counterfeits, people whom I doubt very seriously even know the Lord, to say, look at that verse. God has promised you every good thing if you just have enough faith. Two critical words in that passage open up a whole new vista of interpretation. The first word is the word good. Remember when the Jewish rabbi came to Christ and he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus say? Did he outline the plan of salvation there at that point? Did he say, well, first thing is this, and first thing is this, and first thing is this? He said what? Why do you call me good? For only that that belongs to God is good. In other words, Jesus has a different definition of the word good than we do. Good for him involves good in context with his character and his nature. God defines what is good. It is what is done in the name of Christ that are good works. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags in the sight of God. Not just rags, but filthy rags. The dirtiest of the dirty. Our goodness, defined by what we call good, is contrary to what God calls good. Maybe we look at this passage and say, no good thing does God withhold from those who are righteous or blameless. No good thing. Well, that means that power, money, personnel, prestige, um, peace, joy, contentment, all those things belong to me. I just have to have enough faith. Right? It's not what he says. What belongs to you that he will never withhold from you is all that is consistent with his character and his nature. What God calls good, what is consistent with God's character and nature, what is in the will of God, what God determines is right for you, that is what is called good. You don't define it, he defines it. But the second word he uses there is the word blameless. What he's going to give that is consistent with his character and nature, he's going to give to those who are blameless. Anybody here blameless? I am. I am completely 100% blameless. Now notice I didn't say sinless. You'd have a little trouble with that, wouldn't you? I said blameless. Now I go back to that scene in heaven, sitting at the bema. Blameless means righteous or made righteous, imputed righteousness. That is what God clothes me with. He clothes me with his son. His son is blameless. That makes me blameless. Because you see, my judgment will come through the character of his son who paid the price in my place. So put it together now. 
Nothing inconsistent with God's character will be withheld from those who know Christ. Or put positively, everything that is consistent with God's character and nature will be provided to those who have trusted Christ and are walking in that obedience. That's a promise. Oh, it gets tough. It gets tough along the Valley of Baca. The journey is laced with pain and sorrow. And we all get to the position where we wonder if it's true. For many of us, the emotion just isn't there. And because we don't feel it, then it must not be true, right? Because we don't feel it. Feelings come and go, but the rock of our salvation, which is faith in Christ, is immovable. True faith requires that we believe, listen, in spite of how we feel. In fact, I will go one step further. True faith demands that when all hell breaks out in your life and the feeling is robbed and the only feeling that overwhelms you is the feeling of fear and alienation when nothing of your relationship with God is evident, true faith demands that you believe anyhow, that you say, God, I trust you even though I don't feel it. Notice what he says in verse 12. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. I could almost imagine that David has now been returned to the temple. He's been returned to his intimacy with God. He turns back and he looks at the journey he's had to take, the pain along the way, the trenches he he had the drink from, the sorrow that had to occur. And he looks back and he says, blessed is the man who trusts in you. You know what he doesn't say? Why did you do this to me? Because you see, when you are experiencing intimacy with God, you don't ask why. That's why when we get to heaven, there won't be any questions asked. We won't need any questions answered. Always hear people say, you know, when I get to heaven, I've said this, when I get to heaven, I, I want to ask so-and-so this and so-and-so that. You won't have to. It will all be made clear. You'll be looking down from glory into the pathway God carved out for you, and you will see how the Lord Almighty, which means sovereign God, has put together all the pieces that at the time didn't make any sense, nor did it give you any good feelings. But you look down from a different perspective and you say, mm, how my God was at work and I didn't even see it. I certainly didn't feel it. And it was terribly painful. But as the hymn says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. All of our questions will dissipate. All of the emotion that hindered our walk will be returned. In case you haven't read of some of the activity that goes on in heaven, there is great emotion. They're not standing up there stoically singing hymns. They're not standing there with 
sour faces. The Bible makes it clear there is tremendous rejoicing. And you know what they're rejoicing over? The salvation of a sovereign God who is almighty and yet a shield. You see, he's almighty God, but he's a shield. To understand his omnipotence, his might, will require a journey. The only way you can understand the power of God is through pain. The only way you can experience his almightiness is to experience him being our shield. War, battles, trenches, labor, darkness, but seeing the light, getting to a point where we see the light at the end of that dark tunnel. Understand now why Psalm 84 was such a worship song for Israel. Alienated from God, first verse. The journey back, second verse. The glory experienced, the third verse. Oh, that we would see that commitment to our children. Because you see, that's what this is all about. Their pilgrimage is going to be largely shaped by how we respond in ours. They're watching. They're learning. They're growing. I trust that you understand that. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.